Hello and welcome to another edition of Proselytize or Apostatize. I'm your host, David Russell, along with my co-host, David Calvin. How you doing, David? <laughs> I was predestined to be here. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw this old photo of you from back in the 1500s, so I thought I'd put it on so everybody could see how much of a presuppositionalist you actually are. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, well, I mean, they didn't even have pre-sub back then, but you know, you know what, we're, we're not concerned with historical accuracy or anything on this show, so yeah, <laughs> let's roll with it. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, what's really cool, David, is speaking of history, we've got a, a friend of mine that I met through Skeptics and Seekers, uh, Theodore Pappas. Pappas or? Pappas. Pappas, mm -hmm. all right, did say it right, good, good. Uh, she is a practicing defense. A criminal defense attorney and has been practicing since 1994 and since December she's been on numerous uh, skeptics and ski seeker shows and uh, welcome along Teddy we're happy to have you thanks great to be here awesome so Teddy we're gonna talk about the shroud which I don't know much about mm -hmm. and uh, this this is like an interview form, so we're all here just to have fun. Um, if you want to say anything about yourself before we get going, you're more than welcome. <laughs> you pretty much nailed it. Uh, but I I uh, I guess just one other thing: the Shroud of Turin. I uh, first learned about it when I was 16 years old. It was around Easter time, and I. I think I saw a little blip about it on the television and uh, a magazine cover, and then I got curious about it, and I went and bought a, uh, a book on it. And um, from that point on, it was uh, the book was called Verdict on the Shroud by uh, Ken Stevenson and Dr. Gary Habermas, and it was so compelling that um, I've always been very, very fascinated by it. Yeah, I've always, you know, they came out, it was it was a few years, I think it was probably 2015 when they displayed it again, and I heard Gary Habermas talking about it, mm -hmm. and I was like, well, this is intriguing, so uh, David, he has his own experience with the Shroud. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience with the Shroud? I don't know about this experience. Uh, that, that was news to me that that was coming up. No. <laughs> you said uh, that the... you uh, studied it a little bit with uh, William Lane Craig, had made an argument for it? Yeah, yeah, I read, uh, actually, yeah, I did get the book that she just mentioned, Verdict of the Shroud, and then, uh, but before I got that, I had read about it in William Lane Craig's book, uh, The Sun Rises, he had a chapter where he discussed it there, and it was kind of interesting to me, because I had never taken it seriously before, uh, I just heard, oh, you know, that's, that's a Catholic thing, and we evangelicals, we don't have anything to do with that, uh, but William Lane Craig's a respected evangelical scholar, and he was making a case for it, and I was like, all right, you know, this is interesting, and so I wasn't, like, completely convinced or anything by it, but it opened me up more to it, um, the book by Habermas, uh, was also interesting, uh, beyond that, I haven't really studied it a whole lot more, um, so, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I, I at least to me, and maybe we'll get into this in the interview, but at least to me, I was always thinking, you know, even if it is valid, I'm not really sure, like, what the apologetic value of it is, other than maybe debunking Jesus mythicism. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking oh, forward I to it. The apologetic value about it is that you evidence, the most solid evidence possible, of a miracle and that God exists. And not only that God exists, but the Christian God exists because there is evidence on the shroud um, that the body that, had, that had, it had wrapped um, 
was removed from it in yeah. some sort of a miraculous way. And so there's evidence of the resurrection on it. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's the most, if you ask me in terms of what's the most explosive evidence for uh, Christianity being true, it's, it's the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, Teddy, and you think this is a really cool uh, uh, um, area where apologists could actually use it to their advantage. I was wondering, have you ever thought about maybe writing up an actual uh, apologetic on it to incorporate into a cumulative case type of apologetic? I I have, um, and at one point, uh, it was back in December or so, where I started doing a bunch of intense research. I've done research before on the Shroud. I mean, I was 16 when I read the book, and then um, about three separate times I had some some uh, stints where I was doing for about three or four days some research on it. Uh, and actually, um, when you ask about the apologetics value of it, a very dear friend of mine who was in his 70s, who was an agnostic uh, all of his life, other than maybe when he was just a little kid, um, he ended up, I, I, we had never talked religion before, and one day we were talking, and I found out that he was an agnostic, and I said, well, have you ever heard of the Shroud of Turn? And he said, no, and he's he's a very sharp, sharp man, very logical, very savvy with politics and all of this, and, um, and, and he was saying that, and so then, of course, I get on a tear, and I start sending him uh, a bunch of information. And, but the difference between him and um, some atheists are he had an open mind. He was just the type of person that needed, he, he just couldn't do it mostly on faith. He needed science. He needed evidence, and um, he needed compelling evidence, and I gave it to him, and he's now a Christian. So uh, that's the the power of the shroud, but one has to be, uh, because there are a lot of people and, and actually Christians have been some of the fiercest opponents to the shroud, which is weird. Um, but, uh, and, and there's, there's somewhere that I've read, I don't remember what verse it is, but it, I was doing some research on apostasy and in terms of like, what does it mean um, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And they were talking about how it had to, and this was one interpretation, probably several, but this one interpretation had to be, well, when there is clear evidence of the Holy Spirit to deny it. And so I would, I would caution all Christians because if that interpretation is true, um, I, I would submit that the shroud is is the miracle. It's God's gift to mankind uh, to evidence the resurrection and to evidence His existence. And so, I would to to skeptical Christians, I would suggest perhaps to just. Uh, if if you don't find the evidence compelling, just stay neutral. But I wouldn't, um, you know, deny it. 
throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Bath water. yeah. <laughs> uh, like I said, when I when I read that uh, particular definition, I was thinking, well, gosh, um, there are a lot of Christians that uh, are just out and out hostile towards the shroud, and I'm I'm thinking people, you know, look at the evidence, but they haven't looked at the evidence, and so they just. So uh, you know, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of people that that flat out deny, and I think uh, Clement the Seventh was one of them. But before we get into that, uh, for those that don't know, the Shroud of Turin is an, the actual what they call the burial cloth of Christ, and it's what Christ laid in as he was in the tomb for three days. Uh, it, it surfaced in medieval France, uh, and yeah, Teddy, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um, well, Jeffrey, some of the history. Sure, um, Jeffrey Descharny. Uh, there's a Jeffrey Descharny the first and Jeffrey Descharny the second, but uh, Jeffrey Descharny the first. He got the shroud. He got possession of the shroud, and it's not clear um, to us looking at it historically exactly how he came into possession. He has always maintained that it was given to him freely, that it wasn't something that was stolen. Um, and, and so it wasn't like a, a treasure gotten from war, uh, that it was freely given. And many people think, and I'm, I would say that I'm included in that, although I haven't completely worked out for sure, and I don't know that it can be worked out, uh, how he got it, but I think a very um, solid case can be made um, that he got it from King Louis of France, because when the Crusaders had, during the sacking of Constantinople, there's, there's evidence that this thing that was in Constantinople that was referred to as the Mendelion, that uh, there's there's a lot of very compelling evidence that the Mendelion, which had been historically uh, referenced as the image that is not made by human hands. And that description applies 100% to the shroud and i know that sounds like a very big statement to make but we're in the 21st century with all sorts of technology and no one has managed to replicate an image that has all of the striking and peculiar characteristics that the shroud does and and the shroud has and so um you know if it, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it acts like a duck. But, you know, when you start getting into uh, just a myriad of different features that are so bizarre and peculiar and that no one can replicate, at what point, you know, does one... And, and this brings to mind a... Uh, a quote that I love of David Hume, the, the atheist David Hume, uh, back in uh, 1778, he had uh, written uh, a book and inside this book, uh, there was a section dealing with miracles. And he said, uh, no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind 
that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. So when we are talking about the shroud, in light of the fact that when the shroud appeared in medieval France and there was all the hubbub uh, with the Darcy memo, the Bishop Darcy, uh, about a medieval forger uh, supposedly claiming, and and as just like in our uh, the show that we did on slavery together, David, translations can make make a whole lot of difference. And so there are some kinks in the translation in terms of whether the forger claimed that that he made it or, or that the bishop had heard from a forger that he claimed to have made the shroud. We don't even know whether it was the same shroud. Um, anyway, I, I digress. But, uh, but to, you know, there, there was this claim that a forger had created this cloth. And so when, when you start to break down all of the different peculiarities of the shroud, if, if you just look at things logically, and there's a lot of science and forensics and history, all of that that merge into this subject, it's not reasonable. And I, I David Johnson just always <laughs> gets nuts when I say that, but I, I maintain it, I'm sticking to it. I think it is irrational to, um, when you look at all of the evidence, uh, and, and you know, for people who haven't done and done the extensive digging, you know, I, okay, it sounds uh, like, wow, you know, how can this be? But when, once you start digging into it, um, it, it is telling. So, um, I, I always say, so Teddy, people are going to end, uh-huh. As a, as a defense attorney, mm -hmm. if you were presented this case for the shroud and all the various evidences, are you saying that, that you would get a, if you were a prosecutor and not on the defense, would you be able to get a conviction? Yes. And okay. I have said that. I have maintained that. And I, as a criminal defense attorney, I definitely know what it looks like to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. And the, the shroud evidence, I mean, we were saying that the evidence against OJ during that murder trial was way more than what you see in a typical murder trial, okay? Um, it, the evidence for the shroud is way beyond that. I mean, there was a, there was a serial killer in Tennessee, and one of the, uh, he had uh, done a bunch of mass shootings in different fast food restaurants. And um, with one of the situations, the, the evidence that nailed him and I think that it was, no, I just heard this from one of the assistant DAs, so I was not involved in the case, but the assistant DA had told me that the only real evidence they had was his bloody fingerprint on one of the victim's driver's licenses as he was going through. So just one piece of evidence, still granted, you know, you can't come up with a logical reason as to why, you know, Paul Reed's fingerprint was on a bloody fingerprint was on that 
person's uh, driver's license. But I will tell you with the shroud, uh, you know, let's see if y'all can come up with some good reasons for the peculiarities. But as I say, um, people are going with this when it comes to the shroud of turn, people are going to end up believing in a miracle one way or the other, whether there was some forger that through some miraculous process was able to create a cloth with all of these qualities or whether um, or whether the the cloth is indeed uh, the burial shroud of uh, of Christ and that has some evidence of it of the resurrection. Okay, so yeah, that that's that's really interesting. So what you're saying here is that this forger, um, from what I read, is that you know Clement said that he had a confession. Is what I read. Did you did you read any of that? No, there's no confession on record. The Darcy memo. So every all of that stuff about the forger yeah. that is contained within this. Uh, thing called the Darcy Memo, and um, he, Bishop Darcy, he was the bishop there uh, in Lurie, France, and um, he was claiming that his predecessor, uh, Bishop uh, Poitiers, had uh, had had this exchange with a forger, but but this bishop was a huge fan of Jeffrey de Charny. They were very, very close. So it wouldn't really make sense that the bishop would be um, praising Jeffrey de Charny about something if, if Jeffrey's perpetrating fraud on the public. Um, but in terms of the forger, all we have, see this Darcy memo, first of all, it's not signed, it's not dated. And in fact, it is, just uh, a rough draft. We don't really have evidence that Bishop Darcy even wrote it. Um, it could have been some scribe that wrote it, that was preparing it for him. But then the Pope ended up silencing uh, Bishop Darcy on threat of excommunication. So yeah, uh, that's a, that's another interesting uh, bit of history. There is there are people that have been excommunicated because of this. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it was uh, the daughter of the knight that found it or something that sold it to some Italian royalty. Oh, uh, that was um, Jeffrey de Charny's because there was Jeffrey the first, Jeffrey, and then Jeffrey the second. And uh, if I remember correctly, it was Marguerite de Charny. Yeah. She did not have any children, so she had no one to leave it to. And so she ended up, um, no, she was very, very close friends with the, um, the king of Italy. It's the Duke of Savoy, but it's the king. I don't know exactly how that works, <laughs> but the Savoy family. Um, she was very close with his wife. And with, with the family, and she knew that by her, uh, and they, they did sort of an exchange. Uh, she ended up getting some land. Uh, they got that. Uh, but she knew that it would be in excellent hands that she was putting it in. And, um, and so, you know, that's how they got it. And at the time of the 1978 tests when the the Shroud of Turin Research Project, the Americans, um, and there were some 
people, some Italians as well, and maybe some other places as well internationally. But it, it was dominated by the Americans. Um, when they went to Italy and they were analyzing and testing the shroud, um, at that time, the shroud was still in the hands of uh, the deposed king of Italy. So they didn't have to go through the Pope at that time. When they did the uh, carbon-14 testing in 1988, that's when they had to go through the Pope, and it was uh, Pope John Paul II at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. So, Teddy, as a as a defense attorney now, uh, your your idea is to poke holes in stories, <laughs> you know, and to and stuff like that. And you're telling me you're you're having a hard time poking holes in this story which is really cool to me and this is why i encourage you to actually write an argument out that is is pretty uh uh you know good that that people can read you know um put put all this stuff together but uh now you know we discussed the history of the shroud i want to bring david in to see if he has any questions before we move on to uh some of these awesome qualities that you're you're talking about that will make this miraculous david yeah, specifically, one question I had is, um, you said we had evidence of um, somehow Jesus being miraculously removed, right, from it. So uh, I'm kind of curious how you get, how do you get to that point? Like, what would be the evidence that uh, that there was a re miraculous removal? Okay, um, the the evidence that concerns that, so. And, and we're kind of putting the the cart before the horse, but I will kind of uh, <laughs> let you know. Spoiler alert: it is real blood, and it's uh, it's silliness. It, actually, a lot of skeptics regarding the shroud concede that it is blood, that it is real blood, because there are uh, twelve different tests that the Shroud of Turn Research Project team, and it's called STERP for short, that they conducted. I mean, they see porphyrins in the red stuff that's on the shroud. Um, they, they, there's serum halos on it, uh, just serum albumin, all sorts of um, things that show that it is blood. There's iron, heme. Anyway, uh, so let's just assume, because anybody doubting that it's real blood, just a, a little bit of homework. And actually, I can send some things to uh, to read for people who might be interested to see that there's a wonderful, there are tons of papers. And, and for anybody interested, in learning more, shroud.com is the definitive website for that. It is run by Barry Schwartz, who um, was an original member of the STERP team. He was the photographer. And um, so anyway, uh, but back to the blood. So, so let's just assume, because it, it is blood. So blood, somebody can just get some blood, get a paintbrush, paint it on there. Nope, can't do that. Because first of all, when you, when you get liquid blood and you put a paint, whether you drop it on the shroud, first of all, let's talk about 
dropping some blood on the shroud. If you drop one blood, a drop of blood on a piece of linen, what's going to happen is you're going to see something that looks like a star because the blood is going to travel along the the threads of the linen. So it's not going to look like a perfect round dot. It's going to look like, like a star. Um, so you can't just get, and if you get blood, and people have tried this, uh, to paint blood marks on the shroud, it doesn't look anything like the shroud. Um, what they have discovered, what these blood marks are, the way they got on it, and, and, and what they are, is they are actually transfers of blood clot exudates. And so Jesus, or you know, let's say we don't acknowledge it's Jesus yet, just somebody, some crucifixion victim, uh, they were wrapped up in it. You know, the blood, the, the blood is gonna be drying on them while they're on the cross, and then it's wrapped up. So they think that a, um, a process called uh, fibro, I think it's fibrinolysis, uh, where there's that remoistening of the cloth. But so, but back to the your your question. So you have these very uh, interesting type of blood stains, and um, a professor Art Lind and uh, and Mark Antonacci, who is also um, an attorney and a shroud scholar, and has written at least two books on the shroud, they were doing experiments on trying to replicate these blood marks. They couldn't do it. The blood was always drawn, because with blood, you have the issue of coagulation, and that happens pretty quick. And so it's not just getting it on the, the fabric, it's your supply of blood. Is somebody going to constantly be giving you a a fresh supply of, of liquid blood. And um, coagulants hadn't been discovered until around the 1700s. So, um, you know, what this medieval forger figured out how to, you know, put an anticoagulant in, in blood? Uh, or, or did he get dead animals like a bunch of uh, rodents or something and put, put, you know, injuries on them and then put the marks, because we see there's evidence with these blood marks that they were done through a contact process, not painted on. So then, what when they examine these blood marks, what they also see is that the edges of the blood marks have uh, meniscuses where it's like a raised edge and, um, and it kind of falls a little bit in the center. Now it's these raised edges. That's where everything, you know, happens concerning the resurrection. So if you have these raised edges, when you put the cloth on it, what would you imagine would happen? So, I mean, people have speculated because we know there's lots of evidence that even secular historians believe that in terms of the empty tomb, okay? So we have a shroud, but there's no body in it. Then there's a question of what happened to the body. You know, if, if, if we accept as true 
um, in a you know in a hypothetical that a real body did um, was in this shroud. There's the question of well, so where is the body? Because it's not there. Um, but so then that would mean that somehow either maybe somebody took the body or maybe the body resurrected. But when there's the question of the body being separated from the cloth in a natural way, where, you know, that's not involving the supernatural, here's, here's the problem. When that piece of uh, linen cloth is because we know that the linen cloth had to touch the wounds because that's how it got the blood marks on it. And the blood marks go all the way through the fabric. Now, the body image does not. The body image is the most superficial imaginable. It just, on one strand of thread, one piece of thread is composed of hundreds of fibrils. And the, the body image, that real faint image that we see, that color only goes down one to two fibrils. That's how superficial it is. But so anyway, um, so we have these, um, and, and the way they found it out is they got like a credit card or something and they were just able to scrape it, some of the body image off of a fiber. But um, so anyway, uh, with so when you lift the linen fabric off of the wound, so now everything's dry, right? So the blood's dry, and we think that through fibrinolysis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, that there was some sort of moistening of the wound to where it rewet. Um, there's also some other theories from what uh, Art Lind. Uh, mentions in his study, and there's a write-up about it on shroud.com, um, where certain, for example, the hairs uh, on our arms, certain tissue blood does not coagulate on. And, and so that could be how it got re-moistened. It could have been moisture within the tomb. You know, we're not totally certain how it happened, but somehow these transfers came on to the cloth, nobody can replicate them, but with these meniscuses, um, they're all perfect. They are all intact. Whereas if you were to pull the fabric off in order to separate the, the corpse from the shroud, you're naturally going to pull off some of those edges around, and there are over a hundred bloodstains on the shroud. And so you would have some lifting up of the blood, especially with these edges, but all of these edges, they're intact. So then how so in the Teddy, world? Real the quick. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So here's my question, and maybe, you know, um, I want to make sure, David, that you know, you don't have any more, but uh, can a long-term decay do that? There is no putrefaction. There's no evidence of putrefaction. And that is one of the um, important elements about the shroud. We see this image on there, and of course, how did it get on there? There's no evidence of, um, of putrefaction. 
And so it couldn't have been, so it had it been a, um, some corpse other than Jesus's, you know, again, let's just say somebody removed the body prior to putrefaction kicking in. How is it that the, the perimeters of all of these bloodstains are intact? Yes, that's, that's where, interesting. That is where that, I mean, that's just the cherry on oh, top. Yeah. So, David, does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, yeah, that, that sounds interesting there. Um, so then kind of what is the theory, I guess, on what happens is you just think that, because um, I've always kind of tried to imagine this, because uh, we know that Jesus, after he resurrected, has the ability to, like, go through things, right? Mm -hmm. So is the view that, like, when he resurrected, it just, like, kind of folds up and he walks off of it? Um, There's actually um, a theory. It's called the cloth collapse theory, because um, I've read where they say that the way the image is on there, it's like the cloth was just right in front of Jesus and like almost like a flash of energy. I personally think that whatever that, that you know, if you've got a dead body, you know, the energy is gone from it, right? So to resurrect somebody, I would think, you know, God is infusing that body with energy and Given that Jesus was both incarnate but also a deity at the same time, since he never surrendered his being a deity, um, I would assume that it takes probably an awful lot of energy to reincarnate uh, the incarnate version of of a deity, because they still have those um, those godly powers even in their incarnate form. So. Um, so yeah, I, I you know they think some people think that it the image because the other thing with the image we know that with the blood stains it was a contact uh, process in terms of that the shroud was in contact with the the blood stains in the body, um, but with the image it was formed in a different way. Um, it was formed through a, a process of projection. And, and there's evidence on the shroud that that is, is so, um, because otherwise there would have been distortion in the image if it was done through a contact process. People have tried doing images where they, for example, they'll get like a mannequin, put blood on them, and then uh, wrap them in a shroud and unwrap it. And, uh, you know, because the body is three-dimensional, the, the blood marks go, you know, all over the place, but that's not what you have with the body. So, um, so David, does that, that answer everything? Yeah, that was a question I had. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Any, any other you got on top of that? Uh, I'm just kind of curious, because again, this isn't something that I've studied a whole lot, but I'm wondering like what, I guess is the the biggest objection, would you say, the biggest argument? And maybe not just like a counter theory, uh, but um, like, is there any maybe 
problem with it that somebody would bring up or something that's perceived as an issue with it? What might be the biggest one or biggest few? Absolutely. Um, and I would say I, there's a clear winner on that. And uh, that is the 1988 uh, radiocarbon dating results, which said, which put the date of the shroud within the medieval period, which also happens to correspond with this awful Darcy memo. And that's why I have been doing a bunch of research on the memo because so many people get hung up on, on that memo, which is not signed, it's not dated, it was never, there's no record of it having been sent to the Pope. And there were actually um, two uh, clergymen, uh, one was, uh, last name Chevalier, and I think the other one was Thurston. Two men of the cloth that did some rather hinky things with that Darcy memo to give it sort of the imprimatur of legitimacy. Um, I think it was Thurston that had um, ended up kind of putting a is it putting a date on there or something? I'll have to brush up on that. But um, I think it was that he put a date on there, which which kind of made it look like it was um, part of the back and forth uh, letters that were going on uh, between the Pope and, uh, and the Bishop. And, um, but there's no evidence in the Vatican, uh, nothing. And usually there's a tradition when they issue these, uh, they refer to them as papal bulls. Um, and I think that's just sort of like an announcement. But uh, there is a, a tradition of when you write one bull, you will reference the letter that it is in response to. So with the correspondence that we see that goes back and forth, there's no evidence of this Darcy memo. So I think that um, if, if Bishop Darcy was in fact writing this, uh, I, I believe that, you know, Pope, the Pope's saying, you know, shut it down. And also the Pope at the time was related to the Descharnies. Um, Margaret, was it Marguerite DeShorney? Um, they were related through marriage. I think the Pope was the brother-in-law of the man she remarried after Jeffrey the first was uh, was killed, and so um, the Pope would have, I'm sure. I mean, if the Pope is your brother-in-law, I'm sure you've shown him the shroud. So uh, I think that's partly um, why. He was shutting it down. Interesting. David? Uh, I think that was all I had in the way of big questions. I know we're getting to the point here, so I think I'll turn it over to you then if you have That's any fine. other questions. Yeah, so Teddy, the, uh, there's two different analysis done. One team concluded that, you know, this, this was created uh in 1260 to 1390 but the other one said it was 300 bc to 400 and then in 2013 fast forward we have an infrared test and a spectroscopy which i've been having trouble saying all the time uh that 
says that it's around 280 to 220 CE. So that all those last two uh, actually cover the span of, of mm-hmm. Christ's life. So uh, what is your thoughts on that? Who got it wrong and who got it right? And and actually, I had as I was finishing up um, with David's question the other David, I, I forgot to get to the the whole meat of it, which is how unreliable the carbon dating was. So uh, concerning the radiocarbon dating, uh, one problem with that is that it's always referred to as the gold standard. When I was in college, I had always heard in my chemistry and biology classes that, oh, radiocarbon dating, the gold standard. Well, you know, it is, and usually in most situations, um, but that is not, uh, that does not mean that it is infallible. And the people who use radiocarbon dating the most are archaeologists, and they are acutely aware of how it's not uncommon at all for radiocarbon uh, dating results to be wrong. And, um, and there can be all sorts of reasons. And a lot of times the, uh, the dating can be massively wrong. It, there have even been situations where the dating has given a date that's a future date. And that's because of um, there's, it's referred to as isotropic exchange to where, depending on where something is that, that, or was that was being carbon dated, it might be picking up carbon from other substances. So, um, so dealing with the radiocarbon dating, first of all, back in 1988, the type of radiocarbon dating that they were doing, um, it was a relatively new form that had come into existence that could handle instead of like a where instead of needing a much larger piece of fabric because that's why um, you know there was no interest before from the Vatican in doing it because they didn't want to have to you know sacrifice a big of the shroud to do the dating but once they could do it with a piece of fabric the size approximately of a postage stamp. They went ahead and did it. So, um, but this uh, in its uh, AMS, I think it's accelerator mass spectrometry. Spectrometry is the the newer form of carbon dating uh, that back in 1988. So it was relatively new, and it was not uh, something that was done much on textiles. Now, let's get into first, there's a company called, uh, they're out from uh, Florida, in Florida, and it's called Beta Analytics, and they are the largest uh, radiocarbon dating company in the world. And if somebody just Googles their website, they can see it for themselves. When you look to see about textiles, Guess what they say? They mention that they will not uh, basically date textiles um, unless it is part of a multidisciplinary process. And what that means is it's basically what archaeologists see. Sometimes they will be at a site and 
there's a lot of compelling evidence that the things that they see at that site give it a certain date. And then they do the, the radiocarbon dating and they get a date that's just really off. Well, you know, then they know that something went wrong with the radiocarbon dating. And we'll, we'll get into in just a moment what can go wrong with it. But, um, but so, so you've got this issue here with textiles. So we have with Shroud very much so a multidisciplinary process. Things that um, make it compelling to think that the shroud is what we think it is in terms of the burial uh, shroud of, uh, of Christ, um, there is history, there's the Bible, there is, but you know, even more compelling for the skeptic is there's a lot of science and forensics that come into play. Blood spatter evidence. Yeah. Uh, what, what, yeah so one thing I, I did want to come back on that. I, I did hear this stated somewhere that uh, there was a fire in the medieval times and they had to, and part of the shroud was basically destroyed. And so they, they, they took a piece of fabric and sewed it back on to complete it and that's where they took that carbon dating from is that true strip are you talking about the side strip yeah um so there's disagreement on that um there are some people that claim that that side strip was part of um the original uh fabric uh and I believe it's uh, Adri Vanderhoven. She's written a whole article saying that uh, she thinks that it was something that was used uh, by, uh, I guess, the rabbis um, using that cloth. And that there's something where you're supposed to usually put a, a side strip. Some people question whether it was uh, something that was Joseph of Arimathea's, uh, but. So the the thing is, what we know, there are so many issues with the space that it was carbon dated from, uh, but 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 with the the whole textile thing. So so with the textiles, because we have a mountain of evidence that points in the direction of authenticity, and there's just you know the carbon dating that goes in the opposite direction. Well, well, what about the what about the 2013 uh, or not or the 2018 study that argued the blood couldn't have come from Christ? Okay, that the well, wounds aren't 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 they don't line up? Right. So that was done with um, I believe his name was Matteo Borini and uh, Luigi Garlaskelli. Um, shroud skeptics, but you know that doesn't matter. It, Let's test it. So um, the problems with that is, you know, it, there's there are articles debunking the debunkers. And um, so problems with that are, first of all, they used, uh, if you, you can even look, they, there's a video of them um, doing the experiment and you can see how runny the blood is because they've got an anticoagulant in it. So they've made it even runnier. And now let's think about Jesus. Was Jesus well hydrated when he was on the cross? 
No, he was extremely dehydrated. His body was under stress, which elicits additional res different responses. They were um, on one of the uh, ones with the side wound, they were using uh, a mannequin. Well, a mannequin's body is totally smooth. So that blood was just, and, and plus they were using a blood bag and pouring lots of, of blood, of this thin, drippy stuff. So, you know, you got to do apples to apples. And yeah. that was most certainly... Definitely uh, sounds like apples and oranges there. Yes, yes. Okay, and so, yeah, that that's, that's, you know, that's one of the things. I, I do want to get into some positive evidence here, and, and maybe you can answer these questions for me. Uh, hasn't there been recovered some first century uh, Israeli pollen? That, that these fibers actually have ingrained in it? Um, there's a ton of pollen evidence. Um, to be really candid with you, I, I used to use that in my argumentation, not that, I mean, this was a while back before I was getting into debates regarding the shroud, but um, I came across some information where it, it put it into question, uh, the person that had collected the evidence, and I don't know what the situation is, whether it's, okay. so it might be credible, and I, I kind of hate to even say anything bad because maybe that's just totally wrong, but what I want to do is I, I want to get the best, most solid evidence that I present and not have something that's easy pickings for the skeptics. But but in terms of that evidence, yeah, there's all sorts of things, lots of flora and fauna on the shroud that is consistent with um, with Jerusalem. And yeah. so um, it it is it is impressive. And like I said, I, I used to go for it. And, and it may still be true, but we've, we've got bigger and better. Yeah. How about the one where Habermas, uh, he was on Unbelievable a while back. Uh, it, was, it was a long time ago, I think now. I'm old. So, uh, but uh, he, uh, he was discussing the fact that, you know, there was some new evidence at that time that had come out where there seems to be some sort of radioactivity that went on to imprint that image. And, yeah, I, I wanted to, to clarify that. I... I of course, I never looked into it like I wanted to, but... <laughs> One of the... Um, in terms of people recreating the image, the closest that I have seen has been done through radiation, and it's referred to as a corona discharge, and um, it gives you those same qualities, but not all the way. The reason why is they, it was done actually uh, with, um, wait, no, I'm, I'm confusing the two. There's another one done with UV light with eczema, with an eczema laser. But then the, um, the one that I saw a photo of was done, it was a coronal discharge. And, um, but they needed a lot more power on that, I guess, to bring about Great, the they're talking about corona like heat from the sun, right? I mean, they're talking about like a flash of sunlight that is so bright that, I, you know, it leaves that image. 
Yeah, I mean, I all I know is that's they refer to it as Corona discharge, and I know yeah. we had the okay. eclipse. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to give you any more detail on on that, but I, I do know that in, I've seen the picture, and that is the that even you start to see some of the skeletal aspects of, for example, like in the fingers, in the hands. Um, it's just. It doesn't go, it, it goes maybe like if the shroud image is at 100%, this takes it to about 75, but it is, it looks to be the same process, just not as intense. Um, but now the other thing is, is we don't know if it was some sort of supernatural energy, because just because radiation might give you the same or similar look doesn't mean that it was actually radiation. Maybe it was yeah. just a supernatural energy, but yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, but all yeah. the other attempts at falsification or falsifying the shroud through um, using paint to paint the shroud or uh, powdered pigments, a hot statue to put scorch marks on those, all of those have failed miserably because they don't meet um criteria in terms of the imaging that was done yeah. and it, yeah. even if the guy was just a dead guy <laughs> i mean there's there has to be more to it than that you know it, just as a body being laid on because of the coagulation and so forth so yeah that that's all that, that that's all pretty interesting oh. there's no future putrefaction that's really interesting too and so yeah it, go ahead oh, no, go ahead. oh I, I was gonna say um you know the third possibility, you know, either it's a fake, it's the real deal, or it's just some random crucifixion victim, because it's very apparent from the image between the body image and the bloodstains that this is a crucifixion victim, or it's, you know, meant to look like a crucifixion victim. So one of the things, it's, it's really irrational to think that, um, you know, that it's some random crucifixion victim that isn't Jesus, because one, crucifixion victims were typically criminals. Why? And, and the cloth, the shroud is an extremely uh, expensive, it's a, it's a, it's a very unique, um, we, well, maybe unique is not, I mean, we don't know if another one exists, but it's it's a three to one herringbone weave. When they did the carbon uh, testing back in 1988, they were looking for a control sample of a cloth, a linen cloth that had that weave. And Michael Tite of the British Museum could not, and think about all the ancient textiles he's got access to at the British Museum. They could not find anywhere a fabric with that weave. So that tells us that it was very rare. Now, why would a family of some random crucifixion victim, which is probably the black sheep of the family, why would they bury him in an extremely rare, expensive cloth? That doesn't yeah, quite doesn't make, sense. make sense, but it does make sense for Jesus because Joseph of Arimathea had, had gotten the cloth and he was very wealthy. So it was. It would make sense that that's how they came about uh, about the cloth. Um, oh, uh, do y'all want any more information on why the carbon dating is is bad? Sure, go ahead. I mean, yeah, I was gonna say, hey, do you have any other positive evidence that you want to put out to the audience 
uh, uh, before we wrap up. I mean, we got about five minutes, so. Okay, uh, yes. So um, in terms of, because the biggest hypothesis is that the shroud is a painting. Well, first of all, it, to have a painting, because Walter McCrone, he, who was uh, my microscopist that kept saying that it's a painting, um, he was saying that it was a thinly diluted watercolor painting. But in order to have a painting, you have to have um, media, to, a binder to hold the paint to that. And, and also this shroud had been through a fire and water had, um, had hit the, the shroud, there are watermarks on the shroud. Now, if, if that body image was a painting done with watercolors, well, you can better believe it would be distorted, but it's not. Um, and we don't see, if it was paint, you would see between the threads of the shroud, you would see um, accumulation of paint. We would call that cementation. Uh, the, the, the shroud also has 3D qualities when you put it through this uh, machine called a VP8 image analyzer. When they, they put a photo of it, it, they then saw these three-dimensional qualities to it. And you can't get that with just a painting. Um, you, they don't, there's no evidence the, the, the STIRP team they did a bunch of chemical tests. They did not find uh, any pigment, any dye, any stain that could account for the image that they were seeing. And they were having to use all sorts of chemicals trying to get rid of the body image. And finally they found, I forgot the name of what chemical, finally, something really strong to remove the, the body image off of like one of the fibers that they were um, testing. Also for an artist to have painted this, when you look at the shroud and you look at the perspective of it, it's like, because you've got to imagine, it, it, given the anatomical accuracy of it, um, there's this famous artist, um, she's passed away, Isabel Pixek, and she um, does very large scale um, paintings and human forms. And she was saying that when you look at the perspective for an artist to have gotten the, everything with the body, and remember, it's not just painting one body in proportion, you've got to paint two because the shroud, it's like 14 feet long. You've got a frontal and a dorsal image. So they've got to perfect, to make it perfect to where they line up. And um, and she said that the perspective that an artist would need in order to have a model to, to use to create that, the model would need to be laying down. Also, the, the shroud shows that a man is in rigor mortis. So the model wouldn't be able to lay flat. They would have to be bent in the shape of a person who is crucified on the cross because the form of the man on the shroud is uh, when you look at the body and how like the, the chest is protruding out and all it, you know, they had to dislocate the shoulders when burying him so as to fold his hands. Um, and they, they may have already been dislocated because of hanging on the cross. But, um, but so Isabel Pixick said 
that to get to paint the shroud, you would have to get about on a 15 foot high ladder for the artist looking down on a model. Now, she also mentions um, when you look at the dorsal image of the shroud, you can tell that it's in rigor mortis, that, that Jesus is in rigor mortis, because there is no flattening of the buttocks. And, and actually, I think it was Gilbert Lavoie, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie, or somebody's done um, where they had a, a nude man laying on a piece of glass to where they can see, like, you know, what does the body look like? What would the imprint be? And of course, the the buttocks would be flattened and the back, uh, the upper portion of the back would have a flattening effect. But that is not what you see on the shroud because um, because the, the body was kind of arched upward. And it, it would be probably next to impossible for some person to hold that awkward pose. And we see foreshortening with the image on the shroud. And that didn't even, that wasn't even a thing in art at that time. There was no artwork with, um, with crucifixion scenes and stuff that show the type of blood marks like what we see on the shroud. On the shroud, we also see with the crown of thorns, it's not a crown of thorns. All of the artwork shows a uh, uh, like a circlet, like a thin wreath. With the shroud, we see a cap of thorns. And the way we know that is because of all of the little, um, the, the puncture wounds from the thorns. And it goes all, you know, we don't have an image of the tip top of the shroud because the cloth didn't cover the top of the head. But you can see where the puncture wounds go all the way up, 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 up higher than what a wreath would. So if somebody was going to forge an image of Jesus, they would do what people were used to seeing, which was a crown of thorns. Then there's the puncture wounds in the hand. Uh, in, the sh in, in artwork, we usually see the puncture wounds, the nail wounds in the upper palm of the hand. In the shroud, no, actually what we're seeing in the shroud, it's an exit wound, not an entrance wound, but it is in the wrist. Why would an artist, if they're trying to fool everybody, put it in the wrist? You know, that would make no sense whatsoever. Um, you've got, uh, what other? Um, there's no directionality or, or even outlines to the, the shroud. There are just so many um different features the color is the same all the way because some people have thought maybe it's a scorch mark like somebody got a a metal statue heated it up and put a cloth around it when people have tried to do that you get a distorted image and scorch marks fluoresce under uv light whereas yeah. the shroud body um does not um awesome yeah i mean that's that's very interesting stuff. All of it's very interesting. David, do you have anything you, you would like to, to comment on here before before we wrap? No, no. I think that was all, uh, you know, very good, very interesting. A lot to think about there for sure. So, Teddy, we appreciate you coming on. Um, we're going to wrap it up now. Is there any last word you want to say? Uh, yes, there. there is a ton more to yeah. uh, 
I, I know that the show's wrapping up, but there is a ton of evidence concerning the shroud. And also even um, with the radiocarbon dating and a friend of mine, Joe Marino, he has got a book that's getting ready to come out um, probably in a month or less. And uh, that deals with all of the uh, hinky things. The, the, the people that did the radiocarbon dating, there were all these protocols initially that they were supposed to follow and they scrapped they them scrapped. all. Hmm. And so, and just one more thing. Um, and this comes from the people that did the carbon dating. There's this thing called a chi-square test, which deals with reliability of the carbon date. And they themselves show that their test did not pass the chi-square test. So, oh wow, carbon dating is garbage. But anyway, Joe Marino, um, be on the lookout. It makes it, it makes me wonder. You know, they should try it again. But the bad thing is, I mean, it just destroys fabric. You know? Well, <laughs> but, and they got it from the worst possible part, area. Yeah. There's a watermark and water messes up radiocarbon dating. Yeah. Scorch mark, that carbon. Um, and then there's a question as to whether there was an invisible reweave. And, and actually, Joe Marino and his late wife, Sue Benford, they have done a lot of research in the area of an invisible um, reweave to mend the cloth because where they took the sample was where they were always holding up the shroud when they were displaying it countless times. Huh. So think of all the, the stuff. Why don't they just take it right out of the middle? <laughs> yeah. Right. But anyways, yeah, you know, that's it's all very interesting. I mean, you've given us a lot to think about and you, you've given the audience a lot to think about. Uh, I would love, like I said, for you to create a, an, an actual an apologetic, like an actual argument, you know, maybe a deductive argument of some sort that that would fit within a, a cumulative case that people could present to Atheist. I think that would be a great adventure that you could take part of. Little by yeah. little, so, such a huge volume of evidence when it comes to the shroud. But one of the big things in terms of what you were talking about, a case, is um, Jesus made a falsifiable claim. He had said, I mean, there are many verses that talk about where he had mentioned uh, that he was going to be dying, that people would betray him, that he was going to die, and that he was going to be resurrected. And so I consider the Shroud of Turin God's gift of evidence for the Doubting Thomases, uh, but also for everyone, because it's amazing to be able to look at the face of your Savior. And yeah. so I think that... Um, I never and they've been using it for years. <laughs> yeah, and it's like I've never needed the Shroud... To believe in God, but it has deepened just uh, the relationship when you can see, and also when you study it and you start to, when you look at what the forensic uh, pathologists say, uh, for what they when they look at the the wounds, what Jesus uh, went through, it it just gives you a whole new appreciation. Yeah. Far yeah, well, more than than you know Mel Gibson's movie. Oh yeah, well that was a good movie. I still still love that movie. <laughs> but anyways, you know, again, thanks so much for coming on, um, David. I'm going to kick it to you to wrap us up and tell us what we got coming up in the near future. 
Yeah, well, just next week, we've got a panel discussion going on, uh, five views on apologetic methodology. Uh, we're all going to be hating on presuppositionalism. No, I'm kidding. I <laughs> but, thought that uh, was two weeks from now. Uh no, yeah, sorry, you're right. Yes, that's in two weeks. Uh, we've got that panel discussion coming up. And so, yeah, you'll want to turn out for that. It's uh, going to get feisty, I'm sure, but it should be interesting. And if you're just new to apologetics and you're kind of, you know, trying to figure out what exactly or how exactly you want to go about that, then it should be helpful uh, to you there. And I think that's that's the only big announcement that I have to make. Well, it will accept that you want to do some new things with PRA Raw, which is oh, yeah. okay, okay. I did, it's about that. I, I didn't. I didn't know we agreed on this. Okay, I yeah, real. <laughs> okay, yeah, we can do that. Okay, uh, yeah, no. Uh, idea I had is there's a lot of Christian movies that come out these days, and most of them are really bad. But I used to like them back in the day, and I watched a lot of them. But anyway, so um, yeah, I was thinking, uh, what if we did some movie reviews now of Christian movies, especially the, the apologetic-themed ones, like so, uh, like God's Not Dead, A Matter of Faith, uh, you know, movies like that, and uh, just kind of give our thoughts on, you know, what could they have done better, uh, what are maybe some good parts, uh, and of course, you know, we can, we can think of the directions we want to take that, but that's something to look forward to on uh, PRA Raw. Yep. Right on. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are wrapped. Uh, again, if you like this uh, video, you can subscribe to our channel by just clicking the little watermark uh, in the lower right-hand corner. Uh, this is David Russell and David Paulman with Teddy Pappas, and we are out of here. Bye.